Last time we had a joke and we kind of made fun of, uh, of the men, so this time we'll, we'll pat them on the back. It's great to be a man. Here's some of the reasons why it's great to be a man. Phone conversations are over in 30 seconds flat. You know stuff about tanks. Five-day vacation requires only one suitcase. You can open all your own jars. You don't have to learn to spell a new last name. You can kill your own food. You get extra credit for even the slightest act of thoughtfulness. Wedding plans seem to take care of themselves. I encourage the young couple this morning. Uh, you encourage the guy. You know, wedding plans will just take care of themselves. If someone forgets to invite you to something, he or she can still be your friend. It's great to be a man because everything on your face stays in its original color. Three pairs of shoes are more than enough. Car mechanics tell you the truth. It's great to be a man because you can quietly watch a game with your buddy for hours without ever thinking, he must be mad at me. <laughs> it's great to be a man because gray hair and wrinkles only add character. It's great to be a man because you can drop by to see a friend and you don't have to bring a little gift. If another guy shows up to uh, a fellowship with the same outfit on, you may just might become lifelong friends. <laughs> it's great to be a man because your pals can, never be can always be trusted never to trap you with. So, notice anything different about me? It's great to be a man because you don't have to stop and think about which way to turn on a nut or a bolt. The same hairstyle lasts for years, maybe even decades. You don't have to shave below your neck. Your belly hides your big hips. <laughs> one wallet, one pair of shoes, one color for all seasons. You can do your nails with a pocket knife. You have freedom of choice concerning growing a mustache. And the number one reason why it's good to be a man, Christmas shopping can be accomplished for 25 relatives on December 24th in 45 minutes. <laughs> all right. Let's turn in your, book, in your Bible, if you would, to Revelation chapter 4. And uh, we wrapped up our study of the churches last time we were together. And so at the end of chapter 3, you have the end of the message to the churches. And we don't hear the word church again until we get to the end of chapter 22. If you don't have notes and you'd like them, if you just lift up your hand, we'll make sure that you get them in your hand. There are notes that go along with the study if those are helpful for you. Thank you, Dr. Ferguson. Church, uh, Jesus simply says to John right at the end, he says, go back and remember what I said to the churches. The churches doesn't appear again until the end of chapter 22. The church is not particularly in view from here on until the church, of course, is called by another name in the millennial kingdom. And what is that name? That's the bride. That's right. The church is called the bride. The church ceases to be the issue after chapter 3. In fact, the last word in chapter 3 is churches. And so after that, we're not thinking about that. And we leave the church age. And people always say, well, where does the rapture come in? Well, uh, you can just write that in in the space in your chapters between chapter 3 and chapter 4, all right? You can just write rapture there. That's not, uh, of course, where we find the teaching of the rapture. We find that in a number of other areas. John 14, First and Second Thessalonians, Revelation chapter 3, to name a few. Uh, but uh, that's where you can find it, all right? I had somebody ask me that this morning, as a matter of fact. So where exactly does the rapture fit in? And I just said, well, just write it right between those two, at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. And all of a sudden, we appear in heaven, and we're going to look and see what happens. And the theme of heaven is worship. And so right away, we're going to see that. The theme of heaven is worship. You can find that in your notes. And we're going to move into phase 3. 
In chapter 1 and verse 19, we see right therefore what you've seen and what have you seen just that first vision. We saw then it says what is now, telling John to write down what you've seen so that uh, first vision of Jesus ministering in the churches, that beautiful picture of Jesus. And then what is now, the things that are now we just got through studying, which is the church age and all the churches and the different types of churches. And those are the present tense types of things. And then uh, we see those things to come. And that's what's going to take place later. And that starts in chapter 4. So that's the outline of the book given to us in the book. And so it uh, gives us then uh, introduction. It tells us that we deal with things that we've seen, that we're going to deal with things that are, and then the things that shall be hereafter. We've seen those things that were, those things that are, and now we're going to see the things that are to come. And you see the flow. You can kind of see the chronology there, the outline, uh, very carefully laid out. just tells exactly what's going to happen. That's pretty cool about uh, the book of Revelation. So it explains the type of book that it is. And uh, it tells us that some things are future, and that sometimes is a big problem for some as they look at Revelation, but it's pretty clear at the beginning that it's telling us that there are going to be some things that were, some things that are the churches, and some things that are still to come. All right, the things which are future, let's look and read uh, Revelation chapter 4, and let's read verses 1 through verse 8. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, or was set in heaven, perhaps you have that, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and sardis, and appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon those thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Verse 5, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Verse 6, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Verse 7, The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Let's stop right there. Now, let's look back at verse 1, if you would, as we kind of work our way through and just kind of get a handle on what we're seeing. It's pretty straightforward, I think, and as we connect with some of the things that we know contextually about some of those things that John sees, I think we can get the vision in our mind pretty easily. Verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And so John obviously uh, is there. He's seen the churches. Uh, the Lord has explained to him this ministry of the churches. He has uh, seen this vision of Christ. And then he looks and behold, where there wasn't a way to look in, now there is. And so John just explains it and says, look, I see a door open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after these things. After what things? Well, the things they just got through looking at, which is what? 
a church age. At the close of the church age, there's going to be something else that's going to happen. And he begins right away by saying these are going to happen afterwards. And so you kind of see a chronology being uh, revealed here. All right? And whose voice is speaking? Well, he said it's the same one I heard before. So who was that? That was Christ, right? Christ has been all along kind of prompting him and encouraging him and telling him things. And he says, I heard that voice again. We recognize it sounded like a trumpet speaking. That's exactly what he said at the beginning, right? And then he turned around and saw this vision of Christ. So he's still hearing Christ speak and the voices of Jesus himself with a trumpet power and authority. And so that's uh, John's first thing on his ears then after he moves out of the church age. And uh, also like in chapter 1 and verse 10, John's not dreaming. Immediately again, he is in the spirit. We saw that before, which just means he was led by the spirit to this vision. And then basically you can look at it this way, supernaturally transported out of the material world, awake. All right. John is, uh, knows what's going on. He's not dreaming. He understands this whole thing. And he just describes it as being in the spirit on the Lord's day in chapter 1, verse 10. And he goes on and says the same thing again so we can understand him to mean the same thing. And it says, then he hears the words, come up here. That's an awesome thing to think about. As John looks up, obviously, sees a door that's open and is told to come. That's probably a little intimidating, I would imagine, if uh, you had had that same experience, right? If you were in John's place to be told to come, and he's told to come, and he does, and we know as we've studied a little bit about the apostles, and particularly as we've studied about the Apostle Paul, uh, that uh, they were given special ability to receive uh, direct revelation from God. We talked about that with Paul, and that is what is going to go on here again, as it did in chapter 1 and verse 10. All right, so he's going to get some direct revelation from the Lord. The Apostle Paul got that as well. John's going to get it now. Let's look at verse 2. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. So John, first thing John sees as he's in the Spirit, he goes through this open door. Uh, he sees a throne set in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he was led to this vision. He saw this throne, and the throne is set. And uh, it has the idea of permanence. It's uh, not a passing throne. It's not a temporary throne. It's a forever throne. It's a permanent throne. So whose throne is it? This is the throne of God. Okay, so he comes into this open door. The first thing he sees is this throne that's set. Uh, it's the throne of God. And we know that because uh, the one who sat on the throne uh, is described. It says that he looked like Jasper. That's another word for diamond. Uh, Sardis or Cornelian, that's another word for ruby. And so we see similar descriptions, and we'll see in just a minute, uh, that we can look back in other parts of Scripture and see similar descriptions of the Lord uh, sitting, uh, God sitting on the throne. Verse 3. And he who was setting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Uh, the rainbow probably reflecting God's faithfulness. Ezekiel describes him that way uh, with a rainbow around the throne ever since ancient times. In fact, since Genesis 9, right? We know that a rainbow has been a symbol of God's faithfulness to his promises. And so we see that, that beauty here around his throne. We can recognize these things. And although they symbolize things for us, we recognize the symbol uh, and can understand that it has context. All right? So it's easy to recognize who's sitting there. Now, we know that God is incorporeal, right? Which means he doesn't have a what? He doesn't have a body, right? And we know that God is omnipresent, uh, which means he is before all things, right? And so we, we recognize those qualities about God, and although I haven't taught you specifically about them, as you probably have been through discipleship classes and things in the past, you recognize some of these characteristics. And so when we say God's seating on his throne... But we understand that God is incorporeal, that he doesn't have a body. What do we have? We have the Shekinah glory of God or a localized uh, glory of God revealed on the throne. That's a neat thing to think about 
that uh, God is uh, beyond our imagination, isn't he? he? We understand some of his qualities, but as Job told us, that's only the fringe of the garment, right? We only understand just a little bit of his qualities, but enough to know that uh, there is this localized presence of God revealing his glory. And so God is on his throne in heaven. And John is up there, too. And obviously, there's some reason why he's there. And uh, now he's going to find out what's going to happen. And we're up in heaven, and heaven's going to begin to act on the earth. And uh, let's find out who is up there. Look at verse 4, if you would. <clears throat> Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns on their heads. Now, who is this? Who is this? This appears to be the church. And uh, here's why. The scene is rewards, okay? It's a time of rewards. They bear crowns, it says, and uh, crowns of gold. And in verse 10, they do something with their crowns, we're told. We'll see that in just a minute. But uh, this appears to be the rapture church. It's now complete, and it is there, reigning with God around his throne in glory, having been rewarded. Now, remember... Jesus just got through talking to the churches. He told them they would be wearing crowns. He told them they would be sitting on thrones. And we see now uh, that is exactly the case. As John moves on into the future, we see the church throne there. Matthew 19, 28. You can, you can note that. These are places, the other places where Jesus said this would be the future of the church, church age saints. Matthew 19, 28. Luke 22, 29 through 30. These are all cross-references that can help you kind of see these things. And this, as you're studying and taking your time, working through God's word verse by verse in your own quiet time, these are things that you can do. As you write down these things, you can say, oh, that's pretty cool, 24 elders. They're sitting on thrones. They have crowns. And there's some other things about them we're going to see in a minute. And so as you've got that notebook next to your Bible, you're copying down some of those things and saying, hey, I've heard this before. I know we've talked about this before. And so as you get some time, you kind of cross-reference and look around the Bible and say, okay, do I have this right? Is this the church? Uh, it looks like it is. Here's why. Because these, these things are true about the church. And now we see them. We know that the Lord has told John that we're moving into the future. We see now the future and we see what uh, appears to be representative of the church. Of course, um, we saw Jesus right there in the churches say or imply that the church would be thrown, that it would uh, receive authority. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 21. All these are all references, right, that we just got through reading over the last several weeks that say the very same thing that we're now we're seeing as a future reality for the church. And so it's a pretty cool thing as John gets to go up into heaven. He sees the throne of God, and around this throne are 24 elders that appear to be representative of the church. Okay? Once again, those cross-references, Matthew 19, 28, Luke 22, 29 through 30, and then, of course, Revelation 2, 26, 3, 9, and 3, 21. Okay, and you can look there and continue to dig in there. There are 24 of them, the scripture tells us. Now, there's a lot of speculation about why 24 and all of that. And uh, we have some comparison, which is some of the cross-referencing you can do. David's day, the priestly duties were divided up into 24 divisions. Uh, we know that from 1 Chronicles 24, actually, and later in Nehemiah 10. And so there are 24 divisions, and they serve one month every two years. And so there's some thought that perhaps that... Uh, uh, these represent, although they're the church, uh, represent uh, carrying out a priestly function in heaven or uh, some type of worship function around the throne that is on a rotating basis. But we know, we see, seem to see, think that this represents the church and uh, that 24 is significant and it does have some basis in the scriptures about carrying out a priestly duties. And so perhaps those are, are uh, some of the things that will go on for the church. 
Uh, when Jesus comes to take the church in the rapture, he says, Behold, I come, my reward is what? With me. Isn't that great? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10. Behold, I come, my reward is with me. It appears that the first thing that happens when we are raptured is we go up there and receive our reward. Scripture says that they are with crowns, right? Look at verse 4. Around the throne, 24 thrones. Upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. So they're with crowns. It says they're on thrones. It says they have white robes. And all of these three things are promised to the church, right? And so we see that as we work our way through the Scripture. They are promised to the church. And all uh, I don't think it can be Israel based on chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. In fact, flip forward there. And this is another way you can go about your Bible study. If you're unsure of who it is, you can just kind of eliminate them and whatever one left, whatever one is left, that has to be the one. But uh, it can't be Israel. Revelation 5.9, look there if you would. <clears throat> Continues to talk about the elders uh, up into chapter 5. And let's, let's look at what they do. And they, verse 9 says, Revelation 5.9, these are the elders, they sang a new song. So they're singing, saying, Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You, verse 10, have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, we'll talk about this later, but just to say, obviously, we can't be describing Israel, okay? seems apparent that this is the redeemed people singing that song, those who are saved, right? Those who understand salvation, those who understand Christ's work on the earth, why he came to the earth. And uh, we're going to talk about Israel later. We're going to see the focus begin to be on them. And so you'll see them be eliminated then from this group. It doesn't refer to angels. It can't refer to Israel. So it has to be the church. That's what we're looking at. Okay. I look at verse five, if you would. Revelation chapter four. <clears throat> Out from the throne came flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God and so forth. And we've seen this description already uh, to some extent in Revelation. We've talked about that. This is the vision of God, the sevenfold spirits of God again that we looked at early on as we were in chapter one. Just demonstrates his fullness. Anytime we see seven, it's the number of fullness or completeness. His power is uh, represented in the flashes of lightning and the thunder. We see this happen as God's uh, manifest kind of glory. Uh, is localized in one spot. We see this type of thing, smoke, fire, uh, those types of things that surround him uh, and show his power over the elements and all of that. The menorah is here, or, or the lampstand with seven lamps. It pictures the perfect work of the Holy Spirit. We looked at that before. And the fullness of it, and there are many places and references in the scriptures about that, so we won't go back there again. But this is the divine throne. It's a marvelous thought, a marvelous picture uh, for John as he gets to see it himself. He describes it to us then as he sees it unfold. Okay, look at verse 6, if you would. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, uh, this is a sea, and we saw this before, right? Chapter 1, not really a sea, but some type of mineral. Uh, it's described as a sea because it looks uh, flat and it's an expanse of it. But there's some other places that kind of give us a little bit uh, of a description that enhances what we can learn from Revelation. And uh, although we won't do this extensively because we would be in this book for years, uh, Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, which I'll put on the screen behind me, you can read this, helps us understand this description of this sea. And look at its location, and then you can start getting in your mind's eye uh, a little bit of what John wants us to imagine as well. Exodus 24, 8. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, 
which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Okay, so we'll just stop right there. There's lots we can read there, but you get the, you get the picture in your mind that this is associated with the throne of God, with the localized presence of Shekinah glory. Now, Ezekiel 1.21 uh, does the same thing. If Grant, if you could put that on for me, that'd be great. Um, now, as Ezekiel is describing, he's seeing God's throne and he's seeing it being carried by a cherubim. And he describes it. And so when he, he says wherever these went, those went, he's describing that. We'll talk about it in a minute. But Ezekiel chapter 121, it says, Whenever those went, these went. Whenever those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close behind them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Verse 22, Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. So you kind of get this idea that this mineral, this crystal, the sea, is above the heads of the cherubim, but below the feet of the Lord. Right? So that's pretty cool. You start Now you kind of get an expanse of the picture. You see the same picture repeated all throughout the scriptures as the people see this localized Shekinah presence of the Lord. Now look back at verse 6. We'll continue to look at this. Before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. We saw some examples of that. In the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now this is cool stuff here. All right, and this is uh, some amazing beings, four living creatures. Literally, they're called the four living ones. That's the, that's the literal interpretation there. These are the cherubim, and they are angels. You find this in your notes. Uh, they are angels. It describes them in some detail. They're the cherubim. They are angels. <clears throat> Go ahead to the next uh, slide, Grant. Follow those notes there on your right, all right? They're cherubim. They're angels. Uh, in heaven, uh, that's full of living beings, there's so many sights to see uh, that John would describe them as the four living ones should give us a clue that they're hard to what <laughs> describe, right? So John describes them as the four living ones, and so John, as the Holy Spirit, carries them along, does his best, and we're going to talk about eyes in just a minute, uh, so I'll leave them off because John mentions them twice. But let's talk about that. We realize that they are seen, uh, these angels, these cherubim, are seen during the judgment of God, uh, during the worship of God, and when God's holiness is on display. They're always seen during those times, okay? That's during the judgment of God, during the worship of God, and when God's holiness is on display. And I'll just kind of foreshadow this. Um, many times we, we'd like to do a dinner for our wife and we create an ambiance, right? Or we go into a certain restaurant, we expect a certain ambiance uh, to be there to kind of put us in the mood uh, or whatever. And this is the essence of what I said at the beginning, that heaven, the theme of heaven is worship. And these... Uh, four beings set the ambiance of heaven. And we're going to see in just a minute what they say constantly. And so as a background, as you're thinking of you know, your favorite place to eat or whatever, wherever you're relaxed and whatever it is in the background that you like to hear, realize that in heaven, this is the background for us. That uh, So scriptures describe these uh, angels as ones who are constantly saying something to the Lord. And that is the background of the ambiance of heaven, which is worship. And these angels do it wonderfully. But they're always mentioned with four, and so perhaps there are only four of them, but here uh, they are, their descriptions are remarkable. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. 
And John is obviously using what kind of language here? We talked about this before. He's using symbolic language, isn't he? But that doesn't mean that it's just open, does it? Because symbolic language is a normal figure of speech, isn't it? And we can understand the scriptures if we use uh, the context of the scripture and realize that we've seen these types of descriptions before. And so they have a literal meaning. Obviously, they resemble these beings in their appearance, but there's probably another reason for this resemblance, right? And it's not exactly uh, uh, a careful description as what we find in Ezekiel, uh, but Ezekiel describes each of the creatures as having all four attributes. And so we can, we can take that and understand that uh, they are obviously the same creatures. John is describing them. They've been described for us before in Ezekiel. And they are exactly the same creatures with all four attributes per uh, living one. Psalm 80, verse 1, it says this, O give ear, uh, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. And so, obviously, describing or uh, re- referring to the Lord, and he says, uh, you are enthroned above the cherubim. Psalm 99, verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. And so we kind of see this idea of what this throne is looking like, which is what we said before, that the sea of glass is above the cherubim, the cherubim are below the Lord, the Lord is above them on his throne in his localized glory. Okay, so we appear to be speaking about the same beings. Each of them appears to have the same four attributes. And so they're all compared to God's earthly creatures and creations. If you think about each of these animals, you can begin to kind of grasp a mental image that is almost indescribable. Uh, but you have the strength, the might, the ability, the power of a lion, and it's used to describe these, these beings. Of course, they must resemble them literally, but uh, they are there and resemble them for a reason. Uh, we see the humility, the gentle service of a calf, combined with the strength and firmness of posture. And so you see feet like that in Ezekiel, like a calf, the strength of, uh, and, and stamina and posture, the rational, reasoning, interpretive abilities of a man, uh, that's uncorrupted by sin, of course, but you see the face of a man on each one of them. Uh, you see the majesty, power, and physical ability like an eagle. All, each of these creatures has all of those features, um, and we would say that they have those literal features specifically, and that there's a reason why they have those features, which the Lord is describing for us as uh, these attributes and these animals that God has created help to describe uh, what these angels are capable of and uh, what they look like and are, uh, show some of their uh, characteristics. All right? Now, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4 and following. You can make this as a cross-reference, if you would. Um, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4, uh, really gives a fuller description of these beings. And I would encourage you, at your, uh, at your own leisure, to uh, read that passage and just note it now. But just go and read that passage. That's a marvelous description, very full description Ezekiel gives to us. John, then you realize John is obviously referring to these same creatures, same type of setup, localized a glory of the Lord there on his throne, and these creatures which serve him and carry out duty for him. All right? Now, each of them has some other attributes that John's going to mention in verse 8. So if you'd like to look there, verse 8. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4 was that cross-reference. And the four living creatures, each one uh, of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And John says that each one has six wings. It's just kind of a a cue for us, so we can be fairly sure that each one has everything else too. Or each one has six wings and they resemble an eagle and they have eyes all around, he says. Now, some moms have been suspected of having eyes where? In the back of their head. 
which gives them, uh, from at least my perspective as a kid, supernatural knowledge, right? Uh, they know stuff that they should know, and they just seem to pick that up. Well, um, these angels really have eyes everywhere, not just behind their head. They have them under the wings, over the wings. But they are not omniscient, all right? That's God's attribute. They don't know everything, uh, but they would seem to have a comprehensive knowledge and perception. Nothing seems to escape their scrutiny. And that seems to be the sense here, too, as we uh, kind of look at this. And the fact that John mentions this twice, the Holy Spirit obviously has impressed on him uh, that uh, this is important. And we see that just a comprehensive uh, view of everything, the angels who serve the Lord most closely, uh, who are beneath his throne and carry him and do those things that he's commanded, also have a comprehensive type of knowledge where they see and know the things that go on on the earth and in heaven and uh, are aware of all those types of things. And then we'll just kind of wrap up with this. Then it says that they all worshipped. We're going to pick up on verse 9 next time, but what a worship time it is. Look there, verse 8 and verse 9, if you would. Verse 8 says, And day and night they do not cease to say, and that's why I said if you really want to know what the ambience of heaven is like and realize that the Lord has created you as a physical being, he's, he's going to create a heaven that is going to be similar to that. You're not going to just kind of be a spirit floating around. The Bible doesn't teach that to us. But realize that the ambiance of heaven, which will include the worship of, of the Lord, uh, is holy, 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 is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And look at verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship. Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their th- crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. And so you kind of see this uh, cycle of worship that John gets to set in on and kind of be, uh, if you will, to fly on the wall and sees what's going on in heaven. Uh, we see this future time when the church is raptured. It's before the Lord uh, uh, some of them representing the church are worshiping there with the creatures. And you kind of see that is the sound. And you kind of imagine, no matter where you are, and I just kind of think about it this way, no matter where you are in the expanse of heaven, perhaps, that that sound is always in the background. You realize that the worship of the Almighty One always goes on. The Lord's created us to do that, right? Uh, to worship Him and uh, enjoy Him forever. And He said that over and over in His Word. And we're going to get to do that. Uh, to a God who has created this land, the shadow land where we live, corrupted by sin, is just a very uh, minute impression, if you would, of the true uh, substance of what he's created for us to enjoy. And so, but as John gets, uh, got the opportunity for us, he was told to write down the things that he'd seen so that we might have an idea of perhaps what we can expect as we uh, look towards our future and what a marvelous thing that will be. To serve a God who uh, is worthy to be praised with a physical body that no longer desires to sin. That'd be great. It's not corrupted by our own thoughts and and, uh, the things that we do throughout the week that interrupt that constant praise we'd like to give him uh, in the manner of our life. Let's bow and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you today for uh, time in your word, the richness of it. As we look forward to uh, digging in deeply to this book, we pray that you'll give us your wisdom and understanding. As uh, you have shown all through the years how to read and understand your book, we ask for the wisdom again now to pass on to others how to go about the reading, uh, the interpreting of your book, and as you've instructed us to live uh, with that understanding, the knowledge that we have about this book, and we'll be blessed.
So help us to, by your Holy Spirit's application, uh, live as those who are chosen. Uh, live as those who have this as our future. Live as those who uh, you have promised uh, we remain faithful to crown us and to give us a place beside you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who's made all this possible. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.